Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is side one of For the Record program number 605, interview with Dean McLeod and Peter Vogel about Port Chicago. This has been recorded on August 5th of the year 2007. Once again, it is my pleasure to welcome back to our airwaves Peter Vogel, and it is my pleasure to welcome to our airwaves for the first time Dean McLeod. They are respectively the authors of the online book, The Last Wave from Port Chicago, and Images of America, Port Chicago. Gentlemen, welcome to our airwaves. Oh, thanks very much, Dave. It's so good to be back with you. And thanks, David. It's glad to talk with you. Well, we are... Uh, now, as I'm speaking, on August 5th of 2007, this is a time of year when people pause and reflect on the only two times that an atomic weapon was used in warfare, namely the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As we will see, there is very good evidence developed first by Peter Vogel that, in fact, this is not the first time that an atomic device was used on human beings. We'll get into that later. But the Port Chicago explosion, and I'm going to encapsulate a very important event and the ramifications of it. Gentlemen, anything you feel needs to be added, please do. But in the interests of time, on July 17th of 1944, an ammunition ship, the E.A. Bryan, exploded at Port Chicago Naval Weapons Center, Naval Munitions uh, Depot, and uh, the resulting loss of life and devastation and the handling of the situation both before and after the explosion by naval personnel led African-American sailors to mutiny. The handling of weapons being loaded for the war in the Pacific at the uh, Port Chicago Naval Weapons Depot was largely done by African-American sailors. And after the explosion, many of them mutinied and were, in the opinion of many, unfairly convicted and stigmatized for that mutiny. Ultimately, the case was heard by uh, Thurgood Marshall, who became ultimately the first African-American Supreme Court judge, and in time, those convictions were commuted, and the initial view of the mutineers as basically no good, and what do you expect from, quote, those people, has dramatically turned around. And Port Chicago and that mutiny and the subsequent reversal of the verdicts has become a focal point and something of a landmark in the development of African civil, African-American civil rights and the African-American civil rights struggle, which was to blossom in the 50s and 60s. That is the main context in which Port Chicago and the Port Chicago explosion have come to be known. But what we're going to do in this broadcast is to talk a little bit more about just not only what took place with the explosion, but more about Port Chicago itself and what it was all about. Uh, gentlemen, do you think that, that there's anything that needs to be added to my little synopsis there? I think that's very well done, Dave. I think you've uh, encapsulated it very well. Dean, uh, uh, is there something you'd like to put in at this point? Uh, yes. Uh, I have been, based on my research, come to conclude that there are really three very large stories at Port Chicago. The mutiny and all of the ramifications of that is one of those stories. My book focuses on two other stories, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about some of those. Well, why don't you give us quickly the uh, the subjects, those two? Uh, Dean, Dean, before you do, mention once again the title of your book, which is due for publication, if I'm correct, on September 15th of this year. That's correct. That's correct. It's Images of America, Port Chicago, and it's going to be published by Arcadia Publishing. 
Uh, it's primarily a pictorial history, but the introductions have a considerable amount of meat, much of it which has not ever been published before. Uh, the two other big stories really are a consequence of the underwriting story, which I believe is the nuclear history of the Pacific Coast. And uh, the final story, which my book focuses quite a bit about, uh, quite a bit on, is the story of the eviction of the people of the town of Port Chicago during the Vietnam War. This uh, is a story that's largely unknown. Uh, Dean, very quickly, for people that aren't familiar with the Bay Area, California, tell us a little bit about Port Chicago, Sassoon Bay, the Concord Naval Weapons Center. Place this geographically for us so people have some idea of where we're talking about. Yes. Um, Port Chicago was a town in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area in Sassoon Bay, uh, fed by the Sacramento rivers so that it's uh, deeply inland from the main bay, protected uh, from the ocean by some 30 miles of, of bays. Um, Port Chicago was a small town that uh, was originally a company town. It was created in 1908, and uh, most of the townspeople were, were imported for the timber industry. There was a very large lumber yard there, and it became an industrial center one of the most industrial places in Contra Costa County. Uh, by the way, Sassoon Bay is spelled S-U-S-S-U-I-S-U-N for people that look it up. This whole area is surrounded by mountains, too, which perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about later. Uh, continue, Dean. Um, I think the other story um, that's of significance is the nuclear story, and I, I think that is, of course, going to be talked about some today, but I think that most people don't understand that that nuclear story went on for probably 60 years at Port Chicago beyond the explosion that's famous. Tell us about that history. How, how is Port Chicago a nuclear city in that context? It was the primary transshipment center for munitions, all munitions from the West Coast, uh, from World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War and the Gulf Wars. And so, therefore, all modern weapons that were transshipped from the, uh, to the Pacific from the West Coast, a majority of them came from Port Chicago. So, in other words, Port Chicago is the naval installation on the West Coast of the United States that was the point of departure slash entry for all intents and purposes for nuclear weapons that were going to be deployed in the Pacific theater during the Cold War. That's correct. I'm going to put in here just a, uh, an added note here that uh, Port Chicago, the town as well as the, the military establishment there, um, is about 32 miles uh, northeast of San Francisco. And it, at the time that the base was established in 1942, I believe it was, uh, it was a fairly remote area there and was separated from the larger community of Concord uh, by a row of hills and was essentially in an area of uh, which was uh, without a human population except the small town of Port Chicago. The area was also served by three intercontinental or transcontinental railroads, and it was on those railroads that the munitions uh, were shipped to Port Chicago from from uh, munition bases uh, across the country, some of them primarily in Utah. And it was those railroad facilities that was, you know, primarily the reason that Port Chicago was situated where it was.
So in other words, it was a railhead which served as an embarkation point for shipboard cargoes, and in particular nuclear ones during the Cold War. That's exactly right. The uh, other reason, of course, for the existence of the town was the deep water port that had been used since Spanish times. And basically this was, and, and as such, it was a port where significant merchant bottoms, sign- ships which could hold significant tonnage, could sail relatively uh, far inland. Absolutely, yes. Because so, they had uh, a they... I believe it was um, something like 35 feet deep at the, uh, at the dock. Now, uh, Dean, in your book, uh, Images of America, Port Chicago, you chronicle the history of Port Chicago, and in particular, some of the things that happened to people who lived there as its uh, status as the number one seaborne, at least, embarkation point for nuclear weapons coalesced during the Cold War. Tell us about that, if you would. As the nuclear world developed, and particularly as the transshipment began in greater earnest, and I, I... I don't have absolute information about all of the details, but I I believe that it really began to be built up approximately 1952. And um, from 1952 until 1968, uh, this became more and more important um, as a transshipment center. And at the same time, the town was attempting to grow. This This created the conflict, essential conflict, between the needs of of the military establishment and the needs of the community. Consequently, um, especially during the 50s and 60s, uh, there was a slow economic and political strangulation of the community, and eventually the people were evicted from the town lock, stock, and barrel um, in 1968 during the Vietnam War. Uh, the reason for that, ostensibly, uh, was to provide a buffer zone around the Port Chicago facility in the event that another large explosion would occur, such as the, the one that did occur at Port Chicago on July 17, 1944. But uh, I th- I've heard a rumor said that the Navy, uh, that the, the concept of a buffer zone was really a cover uh, for the idea that the Navy just really wanted the, the town out of there. Well, I think that's true, and uh, it was done on, you know, under the cover of protecting the people for, uh, for the repeat of a, of a World War II-type explosion. Uh, of course, the, the, uh, the thing that's not talked about too much is that if the weapons were to explode, if there was a nuclear explosion, you need a much larger buffer zone that two miles. Uh, Dean, what what year specifically did the eviction of the residents of Port Chicago take place? And remember from a listener audience uh, that this is a town, a town full of American citizens who were just basically picked up and shipped out. Well, it took place in 19, the summer of 1968. Uh, they began eminent domain uh, proceedings in the prior year. It was part of a larger uh, military budget proposal, and I've looked at that budget, uh, and if you examine, like military budgets today, it was uh, a, just a tiny little footnote in the overall military budget. And so from the large uh, perspective, um, it, it isn't something that would jump out and grab you. It was just simply a real estate acquisition. Uh, of course, if you look for, at the micro level and you look at the community that's been there since 1908, some 3,500 people, 
uh, with their churches and their schools and uh, their businesses and their homes that some of them had lived in for three generations, uh, it was a much bigger thing for them. Uh, so basically, it is 1968, right in the middle of all of the social turmoil, the the protests against the Vietnam War, and also the the very turbulent period in the civil rights history that that period uh, was, uh, that all of this took place. That that is to say, the eviction, the eminent domain appropriation of the actual town of Port Chicago. Yes, it, um, if uh, one were to look at the uh, historical records and newspaper accounts, it was a national story at the time, even though it was you know, being drowned out by many other political uh, and social and military movements at the time. It, the Port Chicago uh, eviction was national news for a number of years. Did the people were they were they moved sort of en masse? Were they did they become sort of like a Port Chicago city in exile, or did they they pretty much scatter? They all kind of find their own uh, their own vectors in life, so to speak, and uh, scattered uh, by the prevailing wind, so to speak. Well, they were given the option of uh, taking their homes with them, uh, and some of them actually did move their uh, homes on uh, trucks and moved them into the nearby vicinity of West Pittsburgh. Um, in my book, I have a photograph that shows a, a row of houses going down the Port Chicago Highway uh, being shipped away. The majority of the people moved to uh, other uh, into new homes in the vicinity in Contra Costa County, although now they're scattered all over the United States. I think the uh, really important thing that makes the book of some interest is that these people maintain their sense of community and have a reunion every summer. They have now for 39 years. So in other words, there's kind of like a Port Chicago, you know, in exile alumni association. Exactly. Uh, something like that or something like a family reunion of an extended family of a town that has uh, a long, deep history of inter intercommunication, intermarriage, and a, and it's really quite unique history. Uh, just a, a point of curiosity, Dean and Peter, uh, maybe this is irrelevant. Uh, what caused the town to be called Port Chicago in the first place? Was it the railhead connection? Because, of course, Port Chicago is a major railhead. Or Chicago, the city of Chicago is a major rail center. Was that it? I'm just curious, what, what led to the actual naming of the town? Well, the town originally was called Bay Point when it was created, and it was named after the larger school district that covered a much larger area. Two sections of the school district were uh, uh, in, uh, not incorporated, but uh, platted out by the Smith Lumber Company, and they called it Bay Point. Mm -hmm. As the Depression uh, came along in 1931, in order to save business, to enhance business, they, the Chamber of Commerce and the town leaders decided that they needed to have a complete overhaul of their image. And since industry was the backbone of of a town, they chose the name Chicago. Uh, the postmaster uh, said that they couldn't use that name, and so they ended up calling it Port Chicago. Okay. Well, now now we know where the name comes from. Uh, I would note for people, too, the town actually began in 1908. Uh, that was two years after the earthquake. A lot of cities, you mentioned that lumbering, uh, logging was a major factor in the early growth of the town. A lot of towns in the Bay Area did grow up around logging because the 06 earthquake created a tre tremendous market for lumber and the redwoods uh, were, <laughs> so the Bay Area lost a lot of its redwoods as to rebuilding San Francisco and environs after the quake. 
Uh, the again, Dean, you mentioned that that this area again, Port Chicago, the Port Chicago Naval Munitions Depot, was the primary embarkation point for nuclear weapons headed to the Pacific Theater during the Cold War. Uh, what in your, can, can you perhaps preview your book a little bit for us? What sorts of detail uh, are available in the book? Could you flesh that out a little more for us and give us a little more understanding of uh, just what was actually taking place at that base in this time period that we're talking about? Are you talking about the World War II period or during the Cold War period? Uh, during the Cold War period, when it became the primary uh, embarkation point for nuclear weapons. Well, I think it began uh, as they... Uh, I know I just learned recently that uh, the first uh, nuclear sub was constructed just across the bay at Mare Island in 1952, and it was at that time that I... I believe that the that it became the central point for it. This has been really pretty much secret information, top secret information. I think the Navy uh, even today isn't interested in talking too much about the facility and about the growth of it. Um, it takes some serious digging to to really get a sense of of the extent of it. Uh, we do know that the inland portion of the base uh, was some seven thousand acres. And, that ground covered all types of munitions. This was only simply one of the types of munitions that were were uh, uh, sent overseas. Mm -hmm. So it was not exclusively nuclear munitions. There was a wide variety of ordnance that was moving through Port Chicago. Exactly. And most of the statistics and numbers that I've seen uh, indicate that some 70% uh, of munitions, overall, all types of munitions for the, the major wars, that went to the Pacific Theater, went through Port Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps this is, I'm asking for a subjective judgment, but Dean, do you think that, that the timing of the eviction of the residents of Port Chicago had anything to do with uh, the trend toward civil disobedience, uh, attempting to block military facilities that were supporting the Vietnam War, and perhaps concern on the part of uh, naval authorities that uh, people of that bent might get their hands on or somehow disrupt nuclear uh, operations in that area? I don't really think so. Um, those things came later. Surprisingly, the people of Port Chicago, they were not, they were not, uh, uh, they were blue-collar workers. They were not liberals. They were not protesters. They didn't get into the business of protesting at all until the Navy told them that they were going to have to leave and that uh, their property was going to be taken. Uh, those war protests were actually a later movement that came after the town had had uh, been evicted. Okay. And they continued for a generation. Mm -hmm. I want to step in here with a little uh, a little note here. Uh, the the transshipment of of nuclear weapons uh, would not have been an exclusive province of Port Chicago. I mean, it's just unlikely that one transshipment point would be used uh, continuously. I mean, the idea with nuclear weapons is that you mix up everybody by shipping them first one place and another place so that nobody really knows where there are. It's a big shell game. And although I'm persuaded that nuclear weapons were transshipped through Port Chicago. I don't think that by any means it was the exclusive only 
transshipment facility. If I said exclusive, I didn't mean that. I meant the primary. Uh, not, not that it was the only one, but my understanding, uh, Dean, is that it was the main one, according to your research. Well, I can tell you definitively that it was the main West Coast transshipment, sh- sen- uh, transshipment center for munitions of all types. Okay. Okay. Uh, talking about nuclear weapons and... Uh, by way perhaps of affecting something of a transition to some earlier discussion, which we talked about Port Chicago and the Port Chicago explosion in the context of the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, Peter, you developed initially in your article for the Black Scholar in 1982, the last wave from Port Chicago article that began this this exploration. And uh, one of the pieces of evidence you cited in your initial exploration of the Port Chicago explosion was a piece of film which was, as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong here, that was actually justified, this film of a Port Chicago-like explosion, was supposedly a mock-up that was being presented in order to show the relative advantages of Port Chicago as a facility that the Navy wanted to appropriate. That's correct, Dave. There was a film I learned. I was out at the Port Chicago facility in 1981, uh, speaking to Dan Tikowski, the public affairs officer out there, and I was just talking to him about Port Chicago, and I said, well, you know, I actually am the, of the opinion, uh, Dan, that the explosion at Port Chicago in 1944 was, in in fact, a uh, nuclear fission explosion that had been conducted purposefully by the Manhattan Project and the Navy. And he, at that point, he got up, kind of went out of the room, came back and sat down again, and... Uh, he said, well, we have a film of the uh, Port Chicago explosion. And I said, well, I'd very much like to see that film, uh, because it, if it is, in fact, an actual record of the Port Chicago explosion, it would be impossible that that would be a film documentary, which had been done without knowing in advance that an explosion was going to occur at 1030 that evening. So he then, that is Dan Tukowski, um, who's since passed on, you know, an honorable man whom I greatly admired, uh, he then said that it was a, a nitrate-based film and that the film could not be taken out of the Port Chicago Public Affairs Office safe because it would disintegrate because it was nitrate-based. And therefore, I couldn't, I couldn't see the film. And I learned a few months later that, that, that portions of that film had actually been incorporated into a KQED, that's a public television station in San Francisco, into a film that KQED had made several years earlier that is before 1981, which is called Broken Arrow. And I got a copy of that film, Broken Arrow, from KQED, and I looked at it, and the explosion sequence um, shows a massive fireball, uh, and it shows fragments uh, from an explosion just being thrown off at enormous distances uh, as a measure of time. And... So then I was even more persuaded, you know, that this is probably a film that actually shows the explosion of Port Chicago and therefore had to have been uh, anticipated. And, uh, you know, I published that in the Black Scholar article in 1982, and that continued to haunt Dan Tukowski at Port Chicago until he retired in 1994. And he finally, that is, Dan Tukowski finally said, you know, the film, the original film, has been destroyed, and it's been transferred to videotape. And so the original film is not there, and we cannot, therefore, determine whether it was nitrate-based film. 
if it were nitrate-based film, it would necessarily have been made prior to 1952. Which was when the film was supposedly made, right? Yes, the film supposedly was made in, well, actually the film was supposedly made in 1967 to support the Navy's uh, contention that the town of Fort Chicago should be acquired by eminent domain and taken over. Okay, so it, it is directly relevant then to Dean's re research on the relocation of the citizens of Port Chicago. That is so. The film, uh, which has this, this uh, footage of the explosion, was made specifically by the Navy. Uh, I think it was an independent contractor that, rather than the Navy itself that made the film. And it was made to show specifically to members of the United States Congress and to the public uh, of Concord and that area of Fort Chicago and Bay Point to persuade the local residents that it was necessary and imperative that the Navy acquire this property as a buffer zone to protect the uh, the local environment in the case of another large explosion. Mm -hmm. It was a propaganda film. Now, whether that film actually includes footage of the Port Chicago film or Port Chicago explosion, I have come to doubt. Um, you know, one of the main reasons I doubt that is because Dan Tukowski, before he died, told me that, Peter, the film is gone. You're never going to be able to find out whether or not it was nitrate-based film. In my opinion, it was a mock-up of an explosion the actual fireball is stock footage that the Navy or the producer of the film had found and inserted into the film as an example of what would happen in the event of a large explosion. So I don't, at this point, I really don't think it was that it includes footage of the Port Chicago explosion. And one of the reasons I don't think so, Dave, is because I don't think the Navy and Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project would have been silly enough to make footage of an explosion if they knew it was going to happen. Because eventually it would get out and somebody would say, well, why is this film of an explosion out there? Because you would have to have known it was going to happen. I, don't, I just don't think that the Navy would have, have made that film or, or Los Alamos. And, and in another way, it was really unnecessary to have that film because what really was the, cri the main criteria for the, for the people at Los Alamos was the formation of the ball of fire. Mm -hmm. uh, I would note, though, simply in passing, that if, in point of fact, it had been uh, nitrate-based film, it would have precluded the possibility of that film having been made in '52, because nitrate-based film, highly flammable, was phased out well before then. That's exactly so. Gentlemen, we're almost out of time on this side. Excuse me for butting in, but uh, I'd like each of you to promote both your books and your websites, and in your case, Peter, uh, a bit of a qualification, because there's been a little bit of a hitch with your website as we talk on August 5th of 07. Gentlemen, your websites and your books, and we're going to continue with this discussion on side two. Why don't you go ahead, Dean? I'm really anxious to uh, note this down. I'm looking forward to your website. Well, we just published the website an hour ago, uh, although I've been working on it for quite some time, uh, and the material, uh, much of it comes from my book as well as previous researches that I've done. It, the web page is web.mac, that's M-A-C, dot com, slash Dean, D-E-A-N, underscore McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D, dot Mac. Dot Mac, is that? That's right, Dot Mac. And it uh, has much more detail than we've been able to talk about today, and it's a pretty good introduction to the book, which is Images of America, Port Chicago. I also uh, probably could indicate that the book is coming out September 15th, and that a lot of the material, some of the material is included in the previous book that I wrote called Images of America, Bay Point.
uh, it has different material, but it's uh, also relevant to the same story of the town. And by the way, your last name, McLeod, is capital M-C, capital L-E-O-D, for That's people right. that want to do a little Internet searching on that. Uh, Peter, your website, your book, and the qualification. Right. The last wave from Port Chicago is at www.portchicagooneword.org, portchicago.org. Um, unfortunately, the website uh, is put up by the Contra Costa County Office of Education in California, and that website has been down over the weekend, but I uh, anticipate that it's going to be up early next week and running again. Okay, so for the time being, the website is down, but it's going to uh, reappear uh, very shortly. Yes. Okay. Well, this concludes side one of For the Record program number 605, interview with Peter Vogel and Dean McLeod about Port Chicago. This program is being recorded on August 5th of the year 2007, and we're going to be revisiting with Peter Vogel and Dean McLeod on side two for Dean McLeod and Peter Vogel. This is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is side two of For the Record program number 605, interview with Dean McLeod and Peter Vogel about Port Chicago. This has been recorded on August 5th of the year 2007. And once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to bring back to our airwaves Peter Vogel, the author of The Last Wave of Port Chicago, Last Wave from Port Chicago, excuse me, and Dean McLeod, the author of the soon-to-be-published Images of America, Port Chicago, that is going to be issued by Arcadia Press on September 15th. Gentlemen, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Yes, thanks, Dave. Uh, hey, before we run down the subject material, before we uh, get into the meat of the discussion, uh, Dean, my understanding is that I have been mischaracterizing Port Chicago. Correct me. Uh, only in a, a, a linguistic kind of a way. The term Port Chicago has become conflated, confusing the town from the naval uh, installation. And uh, the naval installation went through numerous name changes, but for most of the time was known as the Concord Naval Weapons Station. It had the advantage of uh, separating it uh, from the place that it actually was, which was adjacent to the town of Port Chicago. But frequently when people think of Port Chicago, they think of the military installation, and that wasn't uh, what it was called by the Navy. I'll stick this in here uh, just uh, to update it uh, for the listeners here that the Department of Defense transferred, oh, it must be a year ago, transferred the uh, Concord Naval Weapons Station, the former Port Chicago uh, Naval uh, Weapons Depot, transferred the Concord facility from the Navy to the uh, Army's uh, Military Transportation Command and what we once knew as Port Chicago and then knew as the Concord Naval Weapons Station is now the Army's military ocean terminal, Concord. Well, now, inside one, uh, Dean related for us how the tiny town of Port Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, some 3,500 residents as of 1968, Dean? Uh, I think the population had declined by then because it had been strangling economically, but at its maximum, which was in the mid-50s, it was 3,500. Uh, anyway, they were relocated. The eminent domain was uh, declared, and they were basically relocated out of their homes in uh, the city of Port Chicago, or the town of Port Chicago, which in the meantime had become a major embarkation point for nuclear weapons to be deployed in the Pacific Theater during the Cold War. Peter, let's go back to the very first 
your point of embarkation, so to speak, keeping the metaphor, uh, on this particular voyage. You were at a rummage sale in New Mexico. Tell us what you found and uh, how some people reacted to it. Yes, Dave. Uh, was the uh, Christ Evangelical Lutheran Church in Santa Fe, out on the uh, Santa Fe Trail. It was a, uh, a spring 1980 rummage sale at the church, and I was going through boxes looking for a for vintage photographic materials that I could use in my own darkroom uh, to get special effects. And I found a box that did have uh, mid-1940s photographic materials in it. At the bottom of the box was a number 10 white envelope that had a piece of paper folded up in it and, you know, was fairly thick. I took this paper out while I was sitting on the floor there at the rummage sale and unfolded it. And the title of the document is History of 10,000-Ton Gadget. It is composed of 11 steps in the progression, which begins with detonation and ends in the bottom line uh, with the statement, ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. Now, I was then working uh, in the state of New Mexico. I was working with a number of physicists and mathematicians who had been at Los Alamos during World War II, and uh, I took this document around to these people when we'd meet, and I'd say, what's the bottom line here mean? ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion. And they said, well, we never heard of it. Uh, but talk to Ed Teller, that is Dr. Edward Teller. Father of the hydrogen bomb. Father of the hydrogen bomb. Talk to, do to Dr. Teller and ask him what Port Chicago uh, was, and he will know. So I made a date uh, to meet with Dr. Teller, with whom I'd studied physics at Berkeley in the mid-1960s, so I knew him. Uh, set up an appointment for August 27, 1980, and I met with him at his office at Los Alamos. And I had a, a Nikon motor drive camera and a big strobe and a battery pack and had told his secretary that I'd be taking pictures of him. And I put this document, the history of 10,000-ton gadget, into his hands and started taking pictures. And I said, read this while I take your picture. And he got into it, and I said, all right, now, Ed, turn around and look right into the lens. And uh, I positioned myself in such a way that the document that he was reading, the history of 10,000-ton gadget, is identifiable in the photograph, and recorded several images of him reading this document. And then I said, well, Ed, Dr. Teller, what is the significance of the bottom line where it says ball of fire mushroom out at 18,000 feet in typical Port Chicago fashion? And he looked at me and said, well, it's not Port Chicago, it's Port Arthur, Texas. And I said, no, it's not Port Arthur, it's Port Chicago. What is Port Chicago? And then he got agitated and he said, he handed the document back to me and he said, I'll deny that I've ever seen this document. I'll deny that I've ever spoken about Port Chicago with you. You probably have a classified document. You should take it to the classification office here at the lab immediately. In other words, he went nuclear. Yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Well, so that's the way it got started. Uh, then um, that was the spring, that was August of 1980, and I was scheduled then, uh, was, knew I would be appointed by the governor of the state of New Mexico to work in the state's energy programs, and we were going to set up the Energy Institute for the state, and we needed a board of directors, high-powered board, and the governor and other people suggested that the director of Los Alamos at that time, Dr. Donald M. Kerr, who then used the designation junior but no longer does, I went to Los Alamos and met with Dr. Kerr in his office to persuade him to be the cornerstone of excellence 
for the Board of Directors of the New Mexico Energy Research and Development Institute. And he, he basically agreed to do it. And then I took out the history of 10,000-ton gadget, put it into his hands, and I said, well, you know, you can do it, but you have to be aware of the fact that I'm going to be the secretary of the board. I am, by statute, an ex officio secretary of the board, and I believe Port Chicago was nuked. And here's the document. Take a look at it. And he said, well, I'll get on the phone. I'll talk to Dr. Teller, and he'll deny uh, any sense to that notion that you have. And I said, well, don't bother. I've already talked to him, and I've photographed him reading it. And after that time, we worked three years together and got along quite well during that time with occasional little spats in, in the men's room. <laughs> but we flew around the state and traveled extensively together and, and conducted the business of the state in energy research for three years. And he had told me, at the time of my first meeting with him, I said, I believe I'm reasonably persuaded that Los Alamos and the Navy detonated a low-yield experimental nuclear weapon at Port Chicago on the 17th of July, 1944. And he said, you'll never be able to prove it. And I said, well, I'll do the best that I can. And that was 1980. Now, subsequently, Dr. Kerr, um, well, let's say six years ago, he was the director of the FBI uh, laboratory division and uh, assistant director of the FBI. And when I realized that I was going to be able to get this book finished, uh, that it was going to be published on the web by the Contra Costa County Office of Education, as I wrote it, I sent him an email. Um, and I said, the book is coming. We should talk about it. And he then wrote me back uh, by snail mail, you know, U.S. Postal Service, and said, what are the issues? And I said, well, from my perspective, the issues are two. Uh, in the first place, I believe that the declaration of war against the empire of Japan that was established by the United States Congress and got us into World War II, that that provided a legitimate basis because, for the test of this weapon at Fort Chicago because it committed the entire resources of the United States and the military, that is the Navy and the, and the Army, to the successful uh, completion of the war. And if you commit everything, the total resources, that means you can basically do anything that's not illegal. And I found no reason in military law that it would be illegal to detonate uh, a weapon and proof, even though it was going to, could be well anticipated to cause casualties, deaths, injuries, and destruction. The other issue I said was I think, you know, that it can be reasonably shown that uh, officials of the United States government, Los Alamos and the National Archives, have acted in concert to deny um, information that's pertinent to my research, and that, that's illegal. So that, that was it. Now, Dr. Kerr is now, and has been for about three years, the um, deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he's in charge, he's deputy in charge of science and technology there, although recently he's been, his name has come up as whether or not he would be nominated to uh, to run the, the CIA, and I think he's, my understanding is that he says, I don't want any part of that. Peter, Peter could I jump in? Is that the same Kerr family as Kerr-McGee Engineering, which which uh, maintains nuclear power plants, among other uh, facilities? It is not. Uh, okay. Kerr family, that's Dean McGee of Oklahoma City, and it was Kerr-McGee. Mr. McGee, though, incidentally, um, served on the board of directors of the New Mexico Institute. Uh, the All right, it, it's just a, a small point in passing. Uh, 
Peter, in, in your very first article, uh, Last Wave from Port Chicago, from the Black Scholar of 1982, spring issue, as I recall, uh, you cited a number of pieces of physical evidence that the Port Chicago explosion has to have been a nuclear explosion and could not have been the detonation of conventional munitions on an ammunition ship, as it was officially said to be the case. If you Granted, this is a, a, a subject for a broadcast in and of itself, and we've done several in the past. Could you briefly encapsulate that physical evidence, the flash, the Wilson condensation cloud, the actual force of the blast, etc.? And then I'd like to get into the discussion of the memoranda that not only you unearthed, but also uh, Mr. McLeod has come across uh, some tremendous supplemental information, which really, I think, opens an entire new vista and deepens the work that you've done and confirms it in a very dramatic fashion. Uh, encapsulate the physical evidence that it was a nuke for us. Well, the first evidence, Dave, uh, is the uh, fireball from the explosion. And the history of 10,000-ton gadget, that document that was made at Los Alamos in winter of 45 says that the the anticipated Trinity fireball will occur in typical Port Chicago fashion. So a nuclear weapon detonation, because of the temperature and heat, are so so great compared to the detonation of chemical explosives like TNT or Torpex. The difference of temperature and heat creates an entirely distinctive fireball. And that those distinctive differences have to do with the the size of the fireball and particularly the rate of ascent, that is, how fast this fireball moves from the surface, how fast it moves in its rise into the, into the sky. Uh, because of the great heat, it moves very much more rapidly and much higher uh, into the sky than the fireball from a TNT or Torpex explosion. So the fireball is really the, the definitive uh, characteristic of the Port Chicago explosion, and Los Alamos had defined the Port Chicago explosion fireball as being typical of a nuclear explosion. So that's really the. Now, that fireball was observed by pilots of two Army Air Corps planes that were flying light aside towards the Port Chicago, and they were one was at 3,000 feet and the other was at nine, so they were able actually to give a very precise timing for the, the rate of ascent of the fireball from the moment of the explosion until it reached first 3,000 feet and then 10,000 feet so that these two pilots were able to very accurately describe for Los Alamos and also in the Court of Inquiry proceedings, very very accurately describe this fireball, how fast it rose and how high it went. And that's the most definitive. Now, we also have this Wilson condensation cloud. And you get the atmosphere at sea level, especially in a marine environment like that. The, the atmosphere is fairly well saturated with moisture. And when an explosion occurs, you have this radiating uh, force, uh, this pressure wave uh, that is, is going out in a, in a sphere um, front from the explosion. And as that passes through the atmosphere, first it compresses this, this, this wet atmosphere. And after it passes, the temperature immediately cools below the dew point so that all of a sudden you have this big circular or hemispherical fog bank, fog cloud that lasts probably a second or two. And the pilots who were flying uh, line of sight toward Port Chicago, one of them said, you know, there was this extraordinary donut-shaped smoke cloud that radiated out from Port Chicago to a radius of three miles. And it was just an enormous moment. Now, there is some evidence that 
even small explosions in the circumstances of a water-laden atmosphere will create a Wilson condensation cloud. But what we had at Port Chicago was enormous. Um, and it's my view, and in consequence of discussions that I've had with a number of physicists and mathematicians, that the dimensions of the condensation cloud, which was formed at Port Chicago, could not be achieved by the temperature and pressure wave of entirely conventional explosives, and therefore we have to look for another reason, and that would be the detonation of the Mark II weapon, as, as, as I propose it. Now, there are a number of other things, and the formation of the crater was, was, was exactly consistent with the formation of the crater beneath the atomic weapons that were detonated at Bikini, under very similar circumstances. Identical with the, uh, with the crater that was formed uh, by the first British test in Montebello, Montebello Islands off Australia. You know, it was just exactly, it corresponds to every reported nuclear weapon test that we have access to. Uh, Peter, let me jump in very quickly because we've got a little less. We've got about 10 minutes left in the broadcast. You also point out in your original article, uh, as well as in your book, the contrasts between past ammunition chip explosions and the, the percentage of the explosives that go off high order and what happened with Port Chicago. And you also, in your online book, have answered questions that have been brought up by critics. One, how come there isn't, uh, there aren't, higher radiation levels, and you've recently developed information that, in fact, there are some areas where the radiation level is higher than would be expected from background, and also evidence that flash burns were present on some of the victims of Port Chicago. Uh, what I'd like to do, we, we have got, unfortunately, just a limited amount of time left. Uh, you eventually came across information, you, you developed on hypothesis that what actually went off at Port Chicago was something called the Mark II. If you could briefly sum up what the Mark II is, and then I'd like to bring Dean McLeod back in because he has supplemented your work on some absolutely stunning memoranda that were being circulated among people who were involved with the Manhattan Project, the development of nuclear weapons, and they were consummately involved with the investigation of Port Chicago. Tell us about the Mark II, Peter, and then uh, for the bulk of the broadcast, I'd like Dean and Peter to uh, show us these show us the actual documentary timeline that, that, to my way of thinking, really points uh, very conclusively to Peter's Mark II hypothesis being valid. Good. I'm going to be real brief because I want to get to, to um, what Dean McLeod has developed here, which is very important. Uh, radiation. I first want to call the... Um, listeners' attention to the fact that Ian Kluft, K-L-U-F-T, uh, on the web has a very extensive article called Background Radiations Near Port Chicago. And that's by Ian Kluft, and he has very thoroughly mapped um, anomalous, anomalously high radiation levels that are, are downwind from Port Chicago uh, across Suisun Bay. And it's very important to look at that, Ian Kluft, Background Radiations Near Port Chicago. Now, the Mark II... Uh, there's only one reference in the published literature to the Mark II, and uh, it just says there that it could it could be used with either plutonium or uh, uranium-235. Now that document, the document from which that information is is uh, taken, I finally found. It's by James Conant, written by James Conant, Harvard University president, and he reports having a discussion with Oppenheimer at the University of Chicago, and he says. You should test the Mark II, make plans as soon as possible to test the Mark II, and if it's successful, you can put it on the shelf. And people can work on the more powerful weapons with 
uh, less nervousness. So the critical words there are, if it works, if the test is successful, put it on the shelf. Very quickly, Mr. Conant and J. Robert Oppenheimer, two of the principal people involved with the Manhattan Project. Continue, Peter. Yes, all right. Um, so put it on the shelf. If, test it. If it works, put it on the shelf. So that was um, just be prior to the Port Chicago explosion. One month later, on 17 August 1944, James Conant again writes to General Groves at the Manhattan Project, and he says, the decision has been made at Los Alamos. We agree that the Mark II should be put on the shelf. Uh, it can be um, developed for combat use in three or four months' time, and there is some possibility that the yield can be somewhat improved. And this was one month after the Port Chicago explosion that that memo was written. Yes, and that same memorandum refers... Uh, not explicitly, but implicitly to the Port Chicago explosion as the rationale that the Mark II was put on the shelf. And uh, the evidence there that they're discussing Port Chicago is that James Conant in that memorandum says that the, uh, the explosion that was the radius of Class B damage that occurred was one-half mile, and the area of Class B damage was 0.75 square mile, and we know from Los Alamos now declassified documents that the radius of Class B damage at the Port Chicago explosion was half mile. So Port Chicago is specifically cited by this reference to the radius of Class B damage as being the rationale for putting the Mark II on the shelf, knowing that it can be developed for, three, for combat use in three or four months' time, and that there's some possibility of yield increase. Uh, Dean McLeod, tell us who Captain Parsons was, and then you have unearthed some uh, remarkable, well, some, some, you've done a remarkable piece of work unearthing some memoranda which supplement and I think uh, validate what Peter's done to a tremendous extent. Tell us about William Parsons and then share some of your research with us. Well, before I do that, I would add one thing about the explosion. Uh, in my book, I have a document which came uh, from the Navy, that shows the blast zone, and it shows a map of the Bay Area, and uh, the greatest extent of the damage, primarily broken glass, was 40 miles away. It went all the way from Petaluma in the north to Redwood City in the south and east uh, also. So the uh, it was an extraordinarily powerful explosion. Also, the uh, one of the ships was completely disintegrated. There were no parts remaining, uh, although uh, it, it was it was completely obliterated. Um, it's interesting that people have heard that uh, that uh, W. S. Parsons was there uh, immediately after the explosion. One of the things that I came across at the National Archives was the war diary from Port Chicago from the installation. And uh, in July, they mentioned this, among the officers and technicians not assigned to duty in the 12th Naval District who visited Port Chicago immediately after the disaster were about 10 individuals, all from Washington, D.C. Captain J.C. Burns, Jr., Captain Radford Moses, Commander M.G. Johnson, Commander J.H. Sides, Lieutenant Commander Dexter Bullard, Captain W.S. Parsons from the Chief of Naval Operations, Colonel Crosby Field, Lieutenant Colonel Rule Stratton, Professor John F. Burchard, who was the chairman of the Dolok Committee from the Office of Scientific Research and 
Development, Max Beard, and E. Moss Brown. And these are all individuals that I give some mention to in the book. I think it's really the first time that they've been connected with Port Chicago in any published material. Of course, Parsons was prominent as the explosives expert in the Manhattan Project. Uh, I believe there were four primary divisions in the project, and he was responsible for the practical application of making, uh, doing the engineering um, for making the, the, the two atomic bombs. Uh, uh, Captain Parsons was also the bombing officer on board the Enola Gay that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Share some of your memoranda with us, Dean, because I, I, I was stunned to see what you've come across. Not that I didn't think it would be there, but I was amazed that somebody was able to come up with it, and it, it, it supplements and I think validates the earlier work that Peter did in a tremendous fashion. Yes, um, there's a number of, uh, several, several. Uh, I've got an entire chronology of that uh, wartime period and uh, references to the memorandum uh, that I've been able to uncover so far on August 16th a little less than a month after W.H. Schindler, who was the officer in charge of the Naval Ordnance Lab in Washington, D.C., wrote a letter to the commanding officers of Port Chicago and Mare Island and provided in the memorandum kudos in the cooperation given to these two gentlemen, Brown and Beard, who had come from Washington, D.C., from the Pentagon and whose, quote, duties were performed in connection with a highly classified and urgent project, and that their efforts shortened the time required to obtain the desired data and information, and the entire project was materially advanced. Wow. So basically what we have is a memorandum congratulating these individuals for successfully executing a highly classified project. Well, they participated in this. This had specific reference, I believe, to the investigation that followed, and it was really an information gathering uh, group uh, of a number of Washington, D.C. individuals who came to measure and learn everything they could about the explosion. Now, that was in the context of an explosion, but it also, I think, I can't imagine that that the explosion would have been considered a highly classified and urgent project. Then there's another one I think it's, it's sort of an intriguing quote. This is on the 28th of August, a couple of weeks later, and this is uh, Burchard, who was the scientist working for Dolok. He receives a letter from Warner, who is one of the other individuals in the Manhattan Project, on what he describes a very low day. Dolok, this is quote, per, uh, quote, Dolok per se worked at the technical level, reported on a tactical level, accomplished no panaceas, contributed intangible guidance and moral support under rather hysterical conditions, and for the using services on the target date, it helped to evaluate the results with as much candor as the negatives demanded. Uh, DOLOC, by the way, an acronym for Demolition of Obstacles to Landing Operations Committee. Yes, and, uh, and if you, uh, in, in my timeline, I give some background on what that DOLOC was, and it was, an ex uh, it was um, part of the overall uh, plan that was designed to be able to destroy installations. Uh, uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, Dean, 
translating the documents that you just related for us from bureaucraties to real English, so to speak, as concisely as one can. And then if I could uh, prevail on both of you to give the titles of your respective books and websites, because we're almost out of time. Well, I'm not sure how to put it in English without editing what the documents say, and I, I prefer to let the documents speak for themselves. Will they be available on your website? They're available on my website, and they're also available in the book that will be coming out. Fantastic. Pictures of some of the individuals who are involved. So that basically people who have had their interest piqued, uh, hopefully they have, they can pursue this and flesh this out for themselves. Well, and I think there's much more research that can be done and uh, plenty of room for anyone else who wants to do original research in real documents. Your book and your website, Dean? The book is Images of America, Port Chicago. The webpage is web.mac.com slash dean underscore mcleod. M-C-L-E-O-D dot Mac. Alrighty, and the title of the book again? Images of America, Port Chicago. Alrighty, and there will be links on the description for this program on the Spitfire website. Peter, same thing, website and book. Uh, the, uh, the name of the book is The Last Wave from Port Chicago, and it is uh, on the web at www.portchicago, one word, portchicago.org. We have been visiting with Peter Vogel, the author of The Last Wave from Port Chicago, and Dean McLeod, the author of Images of America, Port Chicago, and uh, an individual who, uh, well, it just, it, I, I think I speak for Peter, Dean, in saying thanks for entering into this uh, fray, because for so long Peter's been uh, like the lone champion of truth on this, and now, uh, due to your efforts, uh, there's a whole supplemental body of information, which I think buttresses his argument in very effective fashion. And I'm very grateful to the work you've done. All righty. Thank you. I think that the most important thing to remember is that there is an unlimited amount of research that still could be done on this. All righty. We have been visiting with Dean McLeod, the author of Images of America, Port Chicago, and Peter Vogel, the author of The Last Wave from Port Chicago. This concludes, for the record, side two of For the Record 605. For Dean McLeod and Peter Vogel, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.